The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Carl is off today. Global markets on the move as investors weigh the impact of increased sanctions, heightened volatility, and the exclusion of Russia's biggest banks from SWIFT. From financials to crypto, we are breaking down the impact. Plus, Russia and Ukraine's information war amid an influx of misinformation. A look at how companies across the social space are dismantling Vladimir Putin's media machine. And finally, a check on the chips. Do not miss Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon later this hour talking global growth, supply chains, and a whole lot more, John. Yeah, and D, stocks are mixed today. Tech is the outperformer with the NASDAQ in the green yet again in what's already been a volatile response over the day and the last 10 days. Today, the market responding to increased sanctions in Western countries pledged to remove Russian banks' access to SWIFT, which connects financial institutions around the world. Leslie Picker has more on the sanctions and the possible financial fallout. Leslie. Hey, good morning, John. The concern surrounding SWIFT is that sanctioning Russian banks from the messaging system will cause missed payments and giant overdrafts. That's because kicking any Russian banks off SWIFT is akin to those banks essentially disappearing overnight from the perspective of the international banking community. However, Russia appears to be somewhat insulated from much of the global system. Among the U.S. banks, only Citigroup has material exposure, according to a new note this morning by Goldman Sachs. Citi has about 5.5 billion dollars worth of loans, unfunded commitments, investment securities, and trading account assets as of the third quarter of 2021. JP Morgan in a note this morning saying, quote, the impact will be limited at the global scale as the overseas exposure of Russian banks and financial system is relatively small. But a closely followed rate strategist at Credit Suisse had a different take, saying that banks' inability to make payments due to their exclusion from SWIFT is the same as Lehman's inability to make payments due to its clearing bank's unwillingness to send payments on its behalf. The issue involves counterparty risk. Any global firm that had a derivative or swap outstanding with a sanctioned firm could be met with a counterparty that's unable to pay. But this market is opaque, so it's unclear at this point in time where the risk lies and how systemic it is. Another thing to keep an eye on, guys, and this is right up your alley, Russian ADRs in the tech space in particular. That includes Yandex, the Google of Russia, and Ozon, the Amazon of Russia. Both are listed on U.S. exchanges halted today. They have big American investors, though, according to fourth quarter filings. Invesco, Capri, Fidelity, Tiger Global, BlackRock, and T. Rowe Price were large investors as of December 31st. It's unclear how much of these ADRs they still hold at this point in time, but one would expect that, as you can see there, now down uh, 21% for Yandex and 19% for Ozon. So facing steep losses, at least on paper, if they're still holders, dear Jeff. Yeah, not just funds, uh, some American corporations as well. Uber still has a nearly billion-dollar stake in Yandex. Uh, Leslie, thank you for that. Meantime, our Mike Santoli is back and putting today's market response in context. Mike, choppy again. 
It sure has been, uh, Dean. And absolutely, the Ukraine situation the, since the invasion has been the main focal point and probably responsible for the, you know, 2 to 3% swings back and forth. Last week's range in the S&P 500 was so wide, if you include overnight and intraday action, down to about 4,100, closing in the high 4,300s. That's a pretty wide span. So any action between there is really a little bit of noise, including all of the action today. What's interesting is the Russia-Ukraine situation really did create an excuse or a plausible reason for a retest of that January 24th low. The intraday uh, low January 24th was more like there. And what you look at for some kind of a retest or the defining of a bottom of a trading range is a lower price or near uh, the same price in the index, but less intense selling, less downside momentum, fewer stocks making new lows, all those things pretty much lined up. So at least a low in place, if not uh, ultimately the low. Uh, take a look, though, at what's been going on in the NASDAQ 100 relative to the S&P over the last year. And this argues against the idea that Ukraine has been the main thing going on in the markets this year with the S&P down 9%. Because you see right here, uh, the NASDAQ 100 relative to the S&P kind of rolled over uh, in two waves well before this was the main issue. And what's interesting here is whether this becomes uh, some kind of a relevant level and maybe the relative performance today is telling you uh, that sort of the NASDAQ is on a comparative basis somewhat sold out versus the broader S&P 500 guys. I would point out coming into today, the average pullback in a Nasdaq composite stock was more than 40 percent from its high. Uh, Mike, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and for more now on the market fallout, let's bring in Wedgwood Partner CIO David Rolf. David, good to see you this morning. Now, th this uh, crisis, this conflict, this war uh, in Ukraine clearly just uh, massively important from uh, a geopolitical perspective and, and the human cost in the market, though. Uh, how, how much are you paying attention to that in particular? Well, certainly our eyes are on it like everybody else's. I mean, we don't have an edge of trying to think this through, but um, we just hope that the news doesn't get worse. Um, there's been a lot of damage already into, in, in some of these uh, stock sectors. And uh, if we get a better resolution, there's... Uh, there's a, quite a few of these tech stocks that are that are pretty darn cheap right now. We hope for the best. What I keep trying to figure out, David, is what is the impact in Europe to the real economy, to actual demand, uh, to consumer and business behavior? Perhaps we will hear some more about that in the next round of earnings, uh, April, May. But do, do you expect it to be non-material? Is it already priced in? Probably getting priced in, but it is going to be material. When you think about just the commodity costs from uh, so many companies where their input costs are either uh, heavy on energy, commodities. I mean, we've even seen that in some of the European uh, food companies of their input prices where um, the hit to margins, as they've been reported, uh, they some of these companies don't expect then the, the clawback that margin hit with higher prices themselves for a couple of years. And so this just makes that situation worse. And I'm sure in some sectors, in some countries, uh, they're probably te teetering on the brink of recession right now. Hey, David, good morning, it's Deirdre. How are the latest rounds of sanctions investing uh, impacting how you're thinking about investing? I mean, uh, we're early on, but there's so many unintended consequences and it does feel like the tech sector growth stocks are reacting to potentially, you know, a less aggressive Fed, but are they taking into account the impact of those latest sanctions? Slowly but surely, but um, as the, the, the previous set 
mentioned, uh, when Mike mentioned that the average uh, NASDAQ stock has been hit hard, um, even beyond what we think might uh, be the fallout, and if it's in the prices, there's still, a, a, at least in our opinion, more than a handful of tech stocks that, are, that have become so cheap based on their own issues, their own problems, if you will, that, uh, that we think you need to be buyers here. I wonder if you're talking about Meta, also known as Facebook, at least as of the end of 2021. I believe it was your second largest holding. And boy, has it been pummeled. It's now a little bit below, I think, the 2020 highs pre-pandemic. Um, are, are you still holding as much of that as you did? Are you adding to it? What do you do? We, we haven't added to it. We think the next earnings report is going to be a significant clearing event. Um, they're going to be lapping the, the privacy issues from Apple. They've, the last conference call, well, the last conference call was very difficult. If you viewed it uh, from the lens of, an, uh, uh, of a lawyer fighting off the FTC, it made a lot of sense. Uh, certainly, uh, Zuckerberg went overboard in trying to uh, explain how much competition is out there and that they're not a monopoly. But that said, John, when you look at, when you look at the, the current price and evaluation, I mean, the market basically, in our opinion, has priced in little to no revenue growth uh, over the next few years. Um, even though they bought back a lot of stock last year at obviously significantly higher prices, and we expect the buybacks to continue, they're buying back stock at, at a minimum, mid, if not high, single-digit free, free cash flow rates. Those are extremely accretive. And so... Uh, uh, as the volatility continues, we hope we have opportunity and to, to add to our positions. But, uh, but you're right. We went into this with one of our larger positions, and uh, we got the scars to, uh, and the bruises still to, to show for it. Indeed. Um, that, that's, that's part of it, however, uh, as, as you know as well as anyone. David Rolfe, thanks. Thanks, John. Well, tech companies, they are responding to the crisis in Ukraine. Ukraine's vice prime minister called out Elon Musk on Saturday for caring more about colonizing Mars than the invasion and asked him to provide the country with Starlink satellite Internet access. Well, Musk replied that the service had been turned on and terminals are en route, although it is unclear when they might arrive. Airbnb announcing this morning that it and its nonprofit arm are working to provide 100,000 accommodations to refugees free of charge. Tech companies also focused on protecting their staff, Uber and Lyft, both committing publicly to temporarily relocate their full-time employees to other parts of Ukraine or neighboring countries. A U.N. commissioner tweeting earlier this morning that more than half a million people have already fled Ukraine. John, this is conflict in the digital age, and what we are seeing is so remarkable. Many more examples, not just of what the tech companies are doing, but how Internet platforms are being leveraged by its users, by world leaders. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. I mean, I particularly have been impressed by the way the Ukrainian leader, Zelensky, has used not only social media but also video communication to uh, perhaps shift the tide somewhat. Uh, he, he is outgunned but does not appear to be outmatched mm -hmm. when it comes to communication. We'll continue to watch that. Up next, social media's role in the response to Ukraine from the war of popular opinion to misinformation, to the real dollars at risk. Facebook's former security head joins us next. Tech Check, just getting started. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. The internet continues to be a battleground in the Ukraine invasion and Google over the weekend taking a number of steps to limit Russian channels. While stopping short of an outright ban on the platform, it did stop Russian state-backed media, including Russia Today, from monetizing ads on their websites, apps, and on YouTube. YouTube also limiting recommendations to those channels, citing, quote, the extraordinary circumstances in Ukraine. Google later adding it, too, was barring Russian state-backed media from using its ad tech to generate revenue on their own websites and apps. John. Yeah, the social media has been at the center of this crisis. On one side, Ukrainian President Zelensky has been able to capture both domestic and international support with videos like these, direct-to-camera, selfie-style shots that have gone viral. Washington Post even reporting that his personal appeal via video was what convinced EU leaders to send material military aid and increased sanctions against Russia. On the flip side, it's also been a steady stream of misinformation on social media platforms, including scams and Russian disinformation campaigns. Our Julia Borston has more on how social media companies are trying to handle the conflict. Julia. That's absolutely right, John. And it is a conflict because on one hand, social platforms are fighting to keep offering their communication tools. While on the other hand, they're also trying to prevent those tools from being used for manipulation and to spread misinformation. Now, Russia is limiting access to both Twitter and Facebook. For Facebook, they say that's a response to the fact that it's fact-checking Russia-controlled media content. Twitter is suspending all ads in Ukraine and Russia, while Google, YouTube, Twitter, and Meta announced that they are blocking Russian state media from running ads and from making money on their content. Meta's head of security, Nathaniel Gleischert, said that they see value in showing people what misinformation is being shared rather than blocking that content entirely, but they are evaluating for taking further action. We've seen requests from a number of governments around the region and a number of things they've asked we are already in fact doing and we've started doing proactively. On state media in particular, we are already blocking ads and demonetizing Russian state media anywhere in the world. Meta announcing this identified a misinformation campaign aiming to make Ukraine look weak, also a separate hacking phishing attempt. The threat actors that we took down just yesterday, uh, the influence operation, they were linked to a previous operation that we found and removed back in 2020. And the good news here is that the operation from 2020 reached about 250,000 people before we took it down. This operation reached less than 5,000 followers on Facebook and Instagram before we took it down. And that's a pretty good sign. Gleicher told me that Meta is actively collaborating with its rivals, such as YouTube and Twitter, to help battle these threats. He said that they don't compete when it comes to security issues. Guys? Julia, um, is demonetizing state media really a big issue? I mean, my, my impression is that making money isn't the main goal here. Uh, if, if they're trying to get a certain kind of message that might be uh, distorted across, right? They're trying to win hearts and minds, not dollars. 
Well, look, if you're a popular YouTuber and all of a sudden you can't make money in Russia, let's say you're a popular Russian YouTuber and you can't make money in Russia, that might help participate, become sort of part of this public pressure to say, hey, we don't like what this is doing to our business. So I think there are different pieces at play here. Obviously, the, the big question is whether falsehoods are being spread. But once you demonetize um, all of that content, you have to wonder sort of how that is going to influence the people who are making money or had been making money to uh, to start speaking out and, and taking action themselves. Julia, thank you. Our next guest argues that social media should be taking a stronger stance and that Russian state media, or what he calls the, quote, RT cinematic universe, should be banned from all services. Joining us now, former chief security officer at Facebook, now director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, Alex Stamos. Alex, great to have you with you this morning, with us this morning. John just brought up such a great point there is that, you know, hurting the ability of these platforms to monetize isn't really the point. The point for them is not to monetize. What stand do you think they should be taking? Why have they done it yet? So there have been good steps that we've seen. I, I do think it's right to demonetize these sites. It's, it's not true that all of them have direct funding from the Russian state. The, actually, the Russian online propaganda world is really large and complicated. That's why I called it the cinematic universe, because we're not just talking about kind of the big professional outlets like RT or Sputnik, but there's this whole universe of websites that push uh, either extreme content or Russian propaganda that do have to support themselves. So I do think that that is a good step. And I do think that the steps that Julia was talking about are smart, which was going after the covert propaganda, these Russian teams that are either creating lots of fake accounts and pushing propaganda, or that are actually hacking individuals to try to turn their accounts into propaganda. Where I, would, I think the next step now for all the American platforms is they really need to figure out how do they handle state media from authoritarian states. And we're not just talking about Russia here. In fact, the biggest player mm. in this space now is China, thanks to the Hong Kong crisis, thanks to COVID. They need to have policies of how do you handle the official state outlets and the state-aligned media. And I think at this point, there's two reasons to block Russian state media. One, the platforms are now being blocked in Russia. That was not true before. Uh, for a long time, Russians had access to Western uh, ideas and, and, and to have an outlet on Western platforms. As Putin tries to crack down internally, he's now going to be blocking Facebook and Twitter and probably soon YouTube and maybe even uh, some other smaller uh, applications. Um, as that happens, I think a, a direct response should be to block state media. You should not allow authoritarian states to kind of control the conversation via censorship on one side and propaganda on the other. If you're going to have a free flow of, of ideas, that's something you could shoot for, but that is not happening in Russia anymore, and that is the step that needs to be taken next. So, Alex, are you arguing that American technology companies should also be blocking um, state media, those accounts that have blocked them in their countries? And are you saying that they should be doing this proactively in China? I think they're going to have to do it proactively in China. I think the the problem has been is there, that the Alex, kind of, so is there value, yeah. though, in showing people what misinformation is being shared, as you know, Facebook's head of security has argued? I, so I think Nathaniel's right. And, and I don't think what we want to do is we don't want to block any links to these sites. It, it's somewhat of a, of a nuanced position. But I, I don't think RT itself should be able to run a YouTube channel, right? CGTN, which is a massive Chinese propaganda network, should not be able to have tens of millions of viewers on YouTube or Twitch or Facebook. Um, but what you can still have is people linking to their stories and talking about it organically. And I think there, there is a difference between allowing them officially and then not doing things such as cutting off Americans from pointing to these stories and linking to them themselves.
Alex, are we wading into a, a different sort of territory here? Because the, the social media platforms, thinking of Facebook uh, in, in particular, seem to be taking a, well, who are we to say what's true position on so many things? And, you know, therefore, you know, we'll fact check things individually, but not necessarily uh, block world leaders from, you know, Twitter, I think, was in this position, too, from saying things. It's, an, it's important for them to be on the record. But they're facing pressure in this instance to, to do something different. Are they not? Should they? Well, this pressure has actually existed all the time. I mean, the, the big kind of argument over the last five years and will continue to be the big internet policy issue over the next five years is what laws do these platforms have to follow? If you ask these companies, do you respect the law? They say, yes, of course. And if you ask them, do you respect human rights? They say, yes, of course. It turns out doing both those things at the same time is effectively impossible on a global scale. And so I think it is, it is time for them to try to, it, I think this moment is a good moment to shed the kind of neutrality that you're talking about. Because the truth is, is you can't find a neutral viewpoint on a war like this and try to fact check your way out of it. It is impossible to know what is true or not true in the heat of the moment. But what we do know is that Russia is the aggressor state here. Russia has been using their state media outlets as spreading propaganda that we know not to be true. And I think instead of going on a point by point basis of every single claim by Russian TV in this kind of situation, blocking official Russian state media outlets is an appropriate move. So th does this become a difficult standard if it's perceived that the U.S. takes a preemptive military strike against another country and in the future uh, th there's a president that's using social media to talk about it. I mean, I could imagine somebody saying, hey, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, that that does become a big challenge is, is obviously the United States has been in wars that a lot of people believe and in, including me to have been misguided and offensive. Uh, you could have seen if this policy, if social media exists in its current form in the Iraq war that blocking certain kind of state aligned media I think a little bit of the difference is in the U.S., we don't block other viewpoints, right? That, especially in the Chinese situation, that is what's happening here, is that the Chinese government has the, the only Chinese people who are allowed to get on Twitter or Facebook are their propagandists, right? Normal Chinese citizens are not mm. allowed to see different viewpoints. And so I think that is the basis of a lot of these changes, is that you don't want those countries to use, that, again, censorship plus propaganda right. to be able to distort the entire conversation. Well, a lot, a lot of those users, though, do, do use uh, VPN to get past the firewall. Alex, I, I do want to yes. get your take, though. You've had some interesting comments on the role of cryptocurrencies in the crisis. And you actually see this as an opportunity for legitimate cryptocurrency companies to step up their compliance and actually stop sanctions violations, which kind of goes against what some people may have thought the role of crypto may be in terms of anonymity. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is a huge challenge for the cryptocurrency world. And it, it is a possible opportunity for those companies that want to legitimize cryptocurrency. We've never seen a situation like this where you've had so many very rich and very technically savvy people trying to defeat sanctions, right? Like we've never cut a country like Russia off um, from the global economic system. Russians are very good at tech. They have a lot of people who have done a lot of work in cryptocurrency. And then on the black market side, Russian ransomware games are some of the absolute best and using cryptocurrency to, uh, to both uh, hold up and to get ransoms paid and then to launder that money. And so I think this is going to be a huge challenge for crypto companies is they have to have a plan right now of the 
tens of thousands of individual participants in the Russian economy who have the money and the technical means are going to be trying to use cryptocurrencies to get around these sanctions. How are they going to act? And there is an opportunity here to demonstrate that there are certain companies that believe that know your customer laws are appropriate, mm -hmm. that anti-money laundering laws are appropriate, and that proactively go out and stop this stuff. If they don't, and if cryptocurrencies become a sanctions uh, beating regime here, then yeah. that is going to be a huge problem for crypto in the long run. Well, it'll be fascinating to see uh, which way this plays out, or maybe both. Alex Amos, thank you very much. Thank you. Stocks, meanwhile, are mixed. S&P close to break even. Uh, NASDAQ uh, in the green. But here are the stocks on the NASDAQ that were pushing it lower. Uh, once again, we are well off the lows that we saw overnight. NetEase, Booking Holdings, PepsiCo, Gilead, Mondelez uh, among those deepest in the red. Tech checks back in three. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deidre Bosa. We are heading toward the bottom of the hour now. And hey, does this sound familiar? Stock futures were down sharply overnight. Now, two hours into trade, the NASDAQ has gone positive. The S&P just peeking into the green for the first time moments ago. The CLOU cloud index up better than 2%. ARK's flagship fund up nearly 5 More on that in a moment. But first, let's get a news update from Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, John. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. A U.S. official says that Russians have been frustrated by their slow advance on Kyiv. Ukrainians have released video of burned out Russian armored cars and trucks following a battle near the capital. U.S. officials say that Russia is expected to try to encircle Kyiv in the coming days so that attacks can be launched from multiple directions. And in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, authorities say that at least 44 people were injured and in attacks over the last 24 hours and seven died in hospitals. And new reports now say that at least 11 people were killed this morning after Russia launched missile attacks. BP is exiting its big stake in Russian oil giant Rosneft. The company says that the move could cost as much as $25 billion. Unclear how BP will divest its position. Shares of BP have trimmed their losses now down closer to 5% after falling as much as 8%. And the International Olympic Committee is urging all sports federations to cancel or move sports events in Russia and Belarus. It's also recommending Russian and Belarusian athletes be banned from international competition. You're now up to date. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Now, you heard GGV partner Jeff Richards with us last week call the bottom for software stocks. Turning point this week for some of those names was Zoom and Salesforce reporting earnings. With us now on how to play the sector amid geopolitical tensions abroad is Cities Tyler Radke. Tyler, great to have you with us today. What do you think? Have we hit a bottom for some of these software high momentum names? What are you doing at the moment? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. You know, I think we've clearly seen a, a rough start to the sector uh, this year, a lot of these stocks are down 30, 40 percent, uh, you know, on track for one of their worst starts to the year uh, in over a decade. Um, as you mentioned, we've seen uh, a number of earnings thus far, mainly from the calendar companies, you know, the companies that have year end closes in, in December. Uh, Salesforce will be a, a big one to watch here as well as Zoom tonight. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're cautious on, on those names in particular. I think with, with Zoom, you know, that company clearly benefited from 
some of the dynamics during the pandemic, and we're just concerned that that growth is going to continue to slow worse than investors are expecting. Um, you know, on Salesforce for us, that one is is really just a a function of the the market environment, and specifically our concern that as these software multiples uh, go lower, that that actually raises the risk of them doing larger M and A, which has been an issue for the stock in the past. Hmm. Tyler, with Zoom and DocuSign, these two were really, you know, some of the pandemic darlings, the poster children of high growth momentum names. What are you expecting from Zoom? And if it disappoints, will that have an effect on the wider sector? Yeah, so I think Zoom is kind of a, a, a key play on, obviously, the, the work from home, hybrid work dynamics that we saw during the pandemic, communication software. Um, so, so there's a number of names that are kind of attached to that, that broader ecosystem, uh, DocuSign, as, as you mentioned, is another one that uh, benefited from kind of the shift to digital during the pandemic. So uh, I think the natural read through for investors is that, uh, you know, the, the results for Zoom uh, should have implications on on the broader group. Um, mm -hmm. Although I, I would say that, you know, DocuSign and, and Zoom, there's, there's a lot of distinctions between those two business models. But I think the way that investors look at it from a basket perspective, from a, you know, work from home reopening play, um, you know, I think the, those two stocks should should have some correlation. Right. And the high growth complex as a whole seems to be responding more to the prospect of a less aggressive Fed in the year ahead. Um, are they taking into account sort of the geopolitical, perhaps unintended consequences of the sanctions that we've had rolled out over the last few days? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I think for, for software stocks in general, um, you know, the exposure to the, the you know, geopolitical at risk areas are largely pretty small. Um, from a from an overall revenue perspective, you know, predominantly these are uh, business models that have most of their revenue generated from the U.S., uh, North America, uh, Western Europe. Right. I think the concern is that if this this conflict spills over into broader regions, does that start to put some pressure on IT budgets? Um, so I think that that is just something that investors are, are trying to handicap that risk as as we go forward. But from a pure exposure perspective, there, there's not a whole lot directly related to that. But obviously, it's it's hard to really be confident in, in how this situation progresses. Certainly. Tyler Radke, thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Tesla, meanwhile, a bright spot in a tough trade this morning, but Bernstein remains mixed. Tony Sakanagi upping his price target, but still seeing shares falling up to 40% from their current levels. Read why on cmdc.com slash pro. We're back in a minute. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues, tech leaders gathering in Europe for Mobile World Congress. Joining us now in a first on CNBC interview from Barcelona, Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon. Uh, Cristiano, welcome. You guys have some announcements across automotive, PC, modems, uh, and, and more. But I want to start with the war in Ukraine. GSMA, which holds the conference, just canceled the Russian uh, Russia pavilion there. Uh, I understand you uh, historically at least have had some employees in Ukraine um, and a couple of years ago were working with the Russian government to build out 5G in the area. How do the latest developments affect both what you're doing with your employees and your approach to Russia itself? Hey, good, good to talk to you. And uh, it's huge, John. Look, first of all, this is an, a very sad situation. Exactly, 
it's hard to believe what's happening. If, even if you think about a week ago that we'd be seeing some of the things that we're seeing right now, it's very sad. I think we're just, uh, you know, hope, hopeful that things hopefully will improve and, uh, and reduce all this human suffering we see. If anything, connectivity is actually allowing you know, the people of Ukraine to show the world uh, what's happening. But uh, in reality is, for us, uh, we do have an office in Ukraine. We've been in contact with some of our employees. I think some of them were able to relocate and find uh, uh, refuge. Uh, in, in some, About half went to a different country. We also have some employees in Russia, but we don't have a big business. Uh, we have no direct business with Russia. Mostly it's indirect to our customers. and. And as you would expect, I think, like us and everybody else in the industry, complying with the sanctions, and I think very sad that we're seeing what we're seeing right now in the 21st century. It's hard to believe. Uh, it is indeed. Um, you have, uh, of course, been working on announcements there, including next-generation ARM PCs. I think this is the first time you and I have talked since ARM itself uh, was officially no longer going to be a part of NVIDIA as NVIDIA had hoped. Tell me about uh, the, the direction, the emphasis on ARM PCs and how that might be influenced by the prospect uh, of an independent uh, public ARM, which is what they plan to do in just a few months. Now, I'm absolutely happy to do. We had some big announcement. I think one of the key announcements we had, and we have many, one of the key announcements we announced uh, on stage during the press conference with Lenovo, the very first Lenovo ThinkPad Enterprise PC, PC designed for, I think, the future of work and productivity, which is Windows on Snapdragon. Incredible, 5G connected, including a 5G millimeter wave, 28 hours of battery life for an enterprise device. So it's this transition is really happening. We had 225 now enterprises, you know, evaluating Windows on Snapdragon 10 carriers. And it's, you know, this, despite, I think, this sad situation we're seeing here in Europe, it's good to see Mobile World Congress back with an in-person attendance. And the expansion of Qualcomm continues. We, we have more positive momentum in all growth areas of an ecosystem, not only PCs, but we make automotive announcements, announcements related to the metaverse, announcements related to the future of networks and the law of 5G. Yeah, let's talk about automotive because uh, we, we, you and I have been talking a lot about that uh, before Investor Day and since. Uh, car to cloud, Snapdragon connectivity as a service and the telematics applications framework. What role is Qualcomm playing in uh, enabling more services to be built on top uh, of the car as it becomes more technologically advanced and connected to 5G networks? No, it's a great topic of conversation. I think exactly how the last time you and I spoke, we see more and more the automotive industry being transformed. They need a technology partner that provide them a platform for innovation. As we connect the car to the cloud, we know that the car company transform itself into a service company when you can distribute not only media and content, but you have data for analytics and a lot of other cloud-based services uh, as part of owning a car. So what we're announcing at the show is for the first time now we're adding a significant capability to the Qualcomm Snapdragon digital chassis, which is connectivity as a service. And we really built a platform for developers 
which in many cases could be, you know, the members of the automotive ecosystem, OEMs, to start developing, you know, cloud-based service applications for the car, the ability to upgrade services on the car, the ability to have a lot of personalized experiences, and traction is very high, and it's evolution of the Qualcomm automotive business, even to a connectivity as a service uh, platform. Christiana, good morning. It's Deirdre Boza. I wanted to ask you about the export ban and the U.S. restricting the export of chips to Russia. I wonder what your opinion is on the state of Chinese chip making. Can Russia turn to Chinese chips for more of the high-tech capabilities they typically rely on American companies for? How much progress have Chinese companies made under Beijing's leadership's plans to boost the sector? Look, we know the semiconductors are important. I think we learned to the supply chain crisis of semiconductor that has a very essential role in how we think about the future of economy in our digital economy. Uh, U.S. companies and companies like Qualcomm have a significant leadership position from the cumulative you know, R&D that have been invested in, in semiconductor over the many years. We see right now more and more demand for products in China today, hmm. uh, not only phones, but also going to PC in other areas. And I think we still have a significant lead over any ambition of building a semiconductor uh, industry in China. And uh, we continue to partner with, with China uh, for right. their semiconductor needs. At the same time, does geopolitical tension sort of increase China's ambitions in this space? And does it make America's shift in the CHIPS Act all the more important in Washington? Look, as uh, we, I think at, at, the, at the end of the day, I think with the sanctions, I think a lot of uh, our customers who won't, that will be selling products to Russia won't be able to sell products to Russia. But I think it actually underscores the importance of uh, countries, and let's say that's not only unique to China, unique to every other country, they're looking into opportunities to upgrade their econ economy with technology, the importance of have partnerships with the United States semiconductor companies, and I think we've been one benefiting from that. Uh, Cristiano, g give us a flavor, if you can, of the, the conversations on the ground there. Uh, Mobile World Congress, always a, a great time to talk to leaders from various parts of the world, various countries. What's the sentiment uh, based on what's happening there in Europe? Uh, what are, uh, how are the priorities perhaps for business and policy shifting? Uh, great question. Uh, one thing that has been front and center, and I was also before here, I was at a, a Munich security conference, and I think that conversations continue at Mobile Congress. Um, the and the issue of semiconductor supply chain is still front and center. I think there is a lot of uh, positive sentiment about the United States Chips Act and now the e European EU Chips Act. Also now the coordination between uh, the two regions about how to make the most of use of this. I think the two uh, regions had set up an ambition to, over time, to produce at least 50 percent of its own semiconductor needs. Uh, I think the importance of semiconductors for the future, not only in the mobile industry, but every other industry, and the ability to have a geographically diversified semiconductor manufacturing front and center. Other topics is the evolution 
of uh, 5G to virtually every industry, especially the industrial use cases, smart cities, and, the, and broader digital transformation, and the evolution of artificial intelligence as we move to a cloud economy. All right. And of course, the metaverse. It's a, metaverse is also present in a lot of the discussions. Of course, and I know you've got announcements there as well that we didn't, we didn't get to dive into this time, but, uh, but there will be time. Uh, Cristiano, CEO of Qualcomm, thank you. And if you're looking for some green today, check out the top stocks on the NASDAQ this morning. You see Lucid at the top, Zscaler, Tesla, CrowdStrike, Zoom Video, which reports after the bell tonight. Tech Check is back in two minutes. Don't go away. for a gut check on Apple. J.P. Morgan conducting a buy-side survey of 15 respondents' expectations for the company in the year ahead and releasing their findings this morning. The majority of participants projecting 5 to 10 percent total revenue growth in 2022, with services revenue growth between 15 and 20 percent, but more bearish on iPhone sales, anticipating growth of less than 5 percent. J.P. Morgan rating the stock overweight with a price target of $210. Shares are flat this morning, little to the downside at the moment. Lots more tech check after the break. Don't go away. Getting some headlines on the status of Russia-Ukraine talks. Our chief general news anchor, Shepard Smith, has that. Chef? Hi, the, the news is just coming in now, John, and here, here's what I can tell you of this moment. We, we've gotten a report from the Russian side, uh, and I've just received this in the last 15 seconds. Russian and Ukrainian representatives have concluding, concluded the talks they've been holding in Belarus, well, actually on the border, the, the Ukrainians didn't want to go into Belarus because it's obviously not a, not a neutral nation. At any rate, they had talks on the border that's been going on for the last few hours aimed at brokering peace amid the ongoing conflict, or that's how they've laid it out anyway. This says both sides will return to their capital cities for consultation ahead of a second round of talks, which could take place in the coming days. That's according to the Reuters news agency, citing Belarus uh, news. Expectations for a peaceful re resolution had not been high before Monday's meeting, as Reuters put it. Uh, that, I would say, is the understatement of the day. And here's what I have directly uh, from, from the, the head of Russia's parliament, International Affairs Committee, speaking on Russia 24. So take this with it as you will. The quoting now, the talks have just finished. The parties heard each other, found a number of points on which they found progress. This is about human lives, says the Russian side. And he goes on to say, I will not elaborate anymore as we need to take this back to our leadership. Then we'll get back to the Ukrainian side and we will get uh, the next date in, which suggests at least preliminarily that they plan to speak again. Uh, every day matters right now, quoting the Russians saying we can work in the same format and we can agree on something in the next few days. Of course, this is all on the Russians. The Russians invaded a sovereign nation. Uh, the latest dispatch out of there, Ukraine's leader Zelensky has applied for Ukraine to join the 27-nation na European Union on the fifth day of the Russian invasion. So Zelensky is saying, let us into the EU uh, and please send weapons, which much of the world is doing. I know you've reported already that Switzerland has decided that it's not going to be completely neutral anymore, and Germany's done what it did at the end of last week. So the situation has been evolving, and we've seen lots of videos out of the, out of the two major cities, Kharkiv and Kiev, where the, the Ukrainians have very much been able to hold back uh, the Russians' advance, and they have not been able to take either of those major cities. So the question now is, the talks have ended, such as they were. Those go back to Moscow and back to Kiev, and we'll see where this leads us next. 
For now, the sun will be going down in about an hour, and we're expecting another night of fighting as day five of this invasion continues. Shep, thank you. And we'll continue to wait for a response from the Ukrainian side on those concluded talks. Meanwhile, defense talks are on the move this morning as EU countries pledge to spend more on defense. Tech Check is back in just a moment. As the U.S., EU, and U.K. cut off some of Russia's biggest banks from SWIFT, essentially disconnecting it from global markets, could crypto help ameliorate the economic impact? Kate Rooney joins us with that story. Not quite as simple as that. Yeah, exactly, Dee. It's not as easy as it might sound for the Russian government. Liquidity is one big problem. It's hard to find places to buy large amounts of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. These markets are what they call thinly traded compared to the rest of global foreign exchange. The Bitcoin-Ruble pair, for example, maxes out at $200,000 per trade, even on the world's largest exchanges. The Bitcoin-USD pair is about $3.5 million. In the context of the billions of dollars in foreign exchange Russia would otherwise be doing, I'm told Bitcoin really cannot compensate for Russia being locked out of SWIFT. Exchanges would be the main place to get liquidity, but sanctions likely take away that option. There are black market options as well and some lesser-known cryptocurrencies, but those tend to be even less liquid. Exchanges are on high alert right now for sanctioned Russian accounts, and global exchanges are subject to the same anti-money laundering laws as banks. And no matter where a crypto transaction happens, it's traceable. So data firm Chainalysis is among those tracking the big moves. They say they haven't seen any large amount of crypto being moved quite yet. And I'm told demand for Bitcoin and stable coins is picking up on exchanges in Russia. That could increase with currency devaluation, but the country has historically cracked down on the industry, so it's unlikely that crypto will be adopted as a new payment system within Russia. All right. Thanks, Kate. That'll do it for Tech Check. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.